tea, tea, tea the chemist and marmalade. Lord, how nice and cheap they be. And now the bloody stuff is eaten. Little faint winds were playing chase in at the tops of the windows and out the doors. stop to notice was the air always like this? She moves herself and she finds her space and then she still interacts with nature. It's about finding places that are your own and carving out those little rooms and letting nature come to you. life, a writing life, with writer and teacher Sally Bailey, produced by Andrew Smith. Life is full of comedy especially when England turns very cold. And unfortunately, my sink is blocked. A sophisticated plumbing service has been called in. Bodget and Scarper, as my brother would say. Well, I'm bodging it, but I can't really scarp her, because this is my sink. Oh dear, I think that was a result of too much oily something or the other. Soup, no doubt. I can't remember what I did last time to resolve that. It happens about once every month or so. Very, very frail plumbing in these parts. the roof of my boat. There's something about the regularity of that sound that we respond to that somehow seems to map onto the regularity of the natural world with its shapes and patterns and forms and rhythms and movements, the way that leaves are variegated and yet we recognize those whirls and those shapes and those lines the way they're structured, the fractal form, I think it's called, as in fractions, as in a part of something, the way that leaves are divided into small parts. That's how I teach poetry, in small units of sound, which then leads me back to the meaning of the words, the roots of the words, like the roots of trees running under the ground. That's really what etymology is. It's a way of thinking about the historic roots of language and how we're all connected by words 
and shifts in time and space and the way that words are carried from one place to another and then alter their meaning. I must look up the word fractal, fraction, fragment, parts, parts that come into a whole, that cohere, a whole life, a whole dream. I've got to teach Virginia Woolf in a few hours and another student's coming to do some writing work with me, revising. She's keen to cast off the dark spell of the grade culture that they all live under where they're essentially programmed to put down things in a certain way in order to please an examination system. Or in America, they're professors, as they call them. But I'm trying to teach this young woman who's very bright how to read carefully and closely and she's really quite exalted by it actually. She wrote me the most wonderful email. Um, so we're going to try and structure a piece of writing around a short quotation from a Catherine Mansfield story called The Garden Party, which is actually full of that idea of exaltation, of inward feeling that Inward feeling about the world outside, about nature, in particular the wind and the trees, set in a large garden, a large house. Catherine Mansfield, born Catherine Beauchamp, on the 14th of October, 1888. I suppose she first came to my attention for her short stories, that's what she's known for. Her short stories that explore moments of being in time. If I had to put it more precisely, I would say it's probably the experience of anxiety, existential anxiety, to be or not to be, to be what here and now. Most of her life she felt like an outsider, she says that over and over again in her diaries and in her stories. A lot of my students want to write. They want to find ways of expressing an attitude to the world in which they find themselves and their position within it, which I think is a very basic impulse for any writer. I always say to them, you cannot write unless you first read. And I don't just mean read as a way of getting grades and a way of getting commendations and rewards, but a way of coming into knowledge of yourself and others, particularly, particularly of others. That's one of the things I believe literature can do is show show my students how complex situations are. You only have to read Middlemarch to see how many mini communities there are going on within Middlemarch itself. The town, the place, so many different realities, so many complex human organisms and habitats, which means you have to know the individual 
in front of you. You have to ask the right kinds of questions, which takes some sympathy and imagination and time to listen and hear. So I'm just waiting for my next student, Evelyn, to arrive. Beautiful name, Evelyn. I'm just walking up through the gate out of the island to the main road. Alas, there are many cars, um, but we're set back nicely enough that they usually don't trouble us too much. So Evelyn, come and have a look at this. Look, I was I, as I was waiting for you to come for the tutorial, I was uh, I forgot we have this strange object on our table here on the island. I don't know if you've noticed it. It's quite macabre. Look at this. This. <laughs> what's that? Do you want? What do you? What is that? A skull, but I have no idea of what. So yes, it's a skull which was pulled out of the river this summer by my neighbour. And I think it's a horse's skull. But it made me think of that moment in... You may not have read Jacob's Room yet? No, no I have not yet. <laughs> well, we will be reading Jacob's Room. But there's um, the image of uh, a skull that he keeps in his room. His room is almost a collection. It's almost like a natural history museum, his, his room. And Virginia Woolf um, writes out room spaces as though they're almost like being inside a natural history museum collection so this reminded me of Jacob's room the young boy who sadly dies prematurely um, and objects are left behind in lieu of his body and one of the things that left behind is a skull so yes here we are the skull <laughs> the skull on our island it's so it's so bizarre with the trampoline over there and then the skull right here in the middle of the table. I know, the trampoline. Actually, that's the one thing on this island I would, I would remove as an object. <laughs> but that's for the children who live here. So, um, so come in, come in, Evelyn. Yeah, and watch your step going over. I've got used to doing that, but not everyone is. Good, well done. And then, the, oh, there's the kettle. <laughs> The main sound effect of my boat is the kettle going off. <laughs> yeah. So, Evelyn and I are going to be discussing a few of Catherine Mansfield's short stories today. The story that we've been looking at is a very well-known story in her collection. It's called The Garden Party. Um, and it's built on the idea of an extended moment in time of preparation for a party in the summer. So Laura Sheridan, the protagonist, um, is in a rather antagonistic relationship with her mother. So like push and pull, tug and pull. And Laura, in a sense, is trying to find her way of undoing her mother's plans and conventions and devices and modes, which is the party and the planning of the party. The, the, the interesting element of this story, I think, and what makes it perhaps modernistic, is the tugging and the pulling away from the plural, from the we, 
from the mother, whose party idea it really is, it's her conception, and the daughter, who is looking for a space away and separate, where she can develop her own imagination, her own relationship to nature. And after all, the weather was ideal. They could not have had a more perfect day for a garden party if they had ordered it. Windless, warm, the sky without a cloud. Only the blue was veiled with a haze of light gold, as it is sometimes in early summer. Laura put back the receiver, flung her arms over her head, took a deep breath stretched and let them fall. Ah, she sighed. And the moment after the sigh, she sat up quickly. She was still listening. All the doors in the house seemed to be open. The house was alive with soft, quick steps and running voices. Little faint winds were playing chase in at the tops of the windows and out to the doors. And there were two tiny spots of sun, one on the ink pot, one on a silver photograph frame, playing too. <gasps> but the air! If you stop to notice, was the air always like this? So there's this beautiful wistfulness in the tone of her voice, which makes me feel as though I'm floating upon a cloud. It's delicate and feathery, and it's very much like a painting, a watercolour painting, perhaps. So, yes, your, your springboard is that beautiful sentence. Can you read that sentence, actually, first of all, so we can hear it? And Yes, but this. But the air, if you stop to notice, was the air always like this? Yeah, I've been thinking about the this of what this is, that it requires you actually being there in the in the present moment with Mansfield and with Laura specifically to understand what it is. But the air, if you stop to notice, was the air always like this? So she's creating her own internal event, which is private and ecstatic and joyful, but for the air. Um, and that there's that lovely leap forward, isn't there, with that conjunction, but. Yes, I think so. Yeah, it's beautiful. She moves herself and she finds her space and then she still interacts with nature and still the air creeps in and it comes to her and she finds it and she notices the sunlight too on the lid of the ink pot. And I think for me, it's about finding places that are your own and carving out those little rooms and letting nature come to you and fostering that individual connection with it. Yeah, that the stolen moment is her state of becoming attuned to the quietude of life, I think. That's beautiful. I hope you write that down. Have you written that down? It's beautiful. Yes, good. And actually, you use the word unity and quietude, and those are words that I associate with the romantic imagination. You know, it's it's there's no separation between ourselves and nature, and I feel that's really the event that Laura wants. Yeah, I think she's desperate to cling to it and to not be swept away by everything else. I think that's why she resists for so long. Top student, Evelyn. <laughs> <laughs> And I suppose as I read this story and I listen to the gathering and the momentum of the voice, 
I start to feel an affinity with what becomes Laura's ambition for herself throughout the duration of the story, which is to stand separately and away in a space that isn't perhaps noted or marked as an important place within the garden, something somewhat hidden or secret or veiled, to use the word here, veiled with a haze of light, a space that's numinous, that's evanescent or transparent, but nonetheless produces beauty and splendour in a quiet and contained way, which is to say within her own mind. Now, in some sense, I suppose that was my ambition when I moved on to my boat. It's what I hope to experience every day of my life living here, looking out of my windows at the moving trees, seeing the leaves being lifted by the air, as I can now as I'm speaking. The leaves are moving rather gracefully and graciously, um, and there's a kind of symphony of movement you know, as the branches touch, um, touch and move together. So, so I suppose I have, in some sense, developed the same conception of separate peace and separate quietude and solitude, which is Laura's hope. just left and I'm missing Catherine Mansfield already so I've just dug out some diaries of hers because I wanted to be in the presence of someone who doesn't even really keep a diary but scribbles out snatches of song and rhyme shopping lists recipes shards of moments of her day that seem to drop down upon the paper and then little rhymes that go like this tea 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 the chemist and marmalade far indeed today I've strayed through paths untrodden shops unbeaten and now the bloody stuff is eaten the chemist the marmalade and tea. Lord, how nice and cheap they be. It's very cheerful writing, I think. What she's interested in is the act of writing itself in the moment of writing. So it's the moment of being as she writes down the words that really matter. So there's nothing really coherent. She's not thinking about a thesis or a plot. No, she's thinking, I think, about what might amuse her most. These are a series of amusements, little games she plays with herself. Catherine Mansfield. She's called a modernist. I don't really like these labels, but I suppose like Virginia Woolf, like D.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad, Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot. She's interested in moments of being within an order of time that can't be explained by the clock, the tick, 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 tock. 
she's interested in something in between that ticking. Something imperceptible, more vague and unknowable. Something more like ambience, I suppose, ambient space. Space in between words, perhaps in between breathing, perhaps in between thinking. The synapses in our brain, those invisible pathways that send messages through which language travels. I've just come across an entry. October 1915. It's a conversation she writes up retrospectively that she had with her brother, Leslie Heron Beauchamp who was called Chummy for short. It's a very sad conversation because it's written after her brother is killed on the front and she's trying to recreate his presence in a sort of dialogue form. Almost a spiritual dialogue as though somehow she's laying her body, the body of her brother, to rest. They are walking up and down the garden in a Casey road. It is dusky. The Michaelmas daisies are bright as feathers from the old fruit tree at the bottom of the garden. There falls a little round pear, hard as a stone. Did you hear that, Katie? Can you find it? By Jove, that familiar sound. Katie, there must be Catherine. It's her brother's voice. Do you remember the enormous number of pears there used to be on that old tree? We used to go out with clothes baskets to pick them up, and how, while we stooped, they went on falling. We were almost like one child, looking at things together with the same eyes. Time for Mansfield is both very short and very long. She dies young. Like D.H. Lawrence, she was diagnosed with pulmonary tuberculosis. Pulmonary tuberculosis in 1917. Six years before she died. Age 34. In France. So the shadows of the sun are already falling upon her. Long shadows running through the grass. The shadows on the grass are long and strange. A puff of strange wind whispers in the ivy, whispers in the ivy, the strange wind. And the old moon touches them with silver. She shivers, she shivers, she shivers, she shivers, she shivers, she shivers. You're cold, Katie, you're cold, dreadfully cold. He puts his arm round her. Suddenly he kisses her. Goodbye, 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 darling. Goodbye. 
It was always a mystery. It's as though she's resurrecting her dead brother. She writes October 29th, 1915. Awake, awake, my little boy, awake, 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 my little boy. I want to write down the fact that not only am I not afraid of death, I welcome the idea of death. I welcome death. I welcome death. I believe in immortality because he is not here and I long to join him, my darling. Thank you for listening to A Reading Life, A Writing Life with writer and teacher Sally Bailey. Produced by Andrew Smith. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like it, give us a review, or mention us to friends or on social media. Thank you.